to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. Well, again, welcome to Roswell Presbyterian Church to the Modern Service. It's great uh, to be with you. We had an awesome kickoff last Sunday. Thanks for everybody who made that possible. The food trucks ran out of food. The kids run out, ran out of energy going down the slide. People were dunked in the dunk tank. It was awesome. So thank you for everyone who helped make that happen last week. I want to let you know or remind you that on September 19th, we have the Mission Golf Tournament where we raise money for our mission partners. I'm going to be playing, so I guarantee you, you won't be the worst golfer there. It's going to be so much fun. Bring a friend, bring family. Uh, It's on the 19th at Brookfield Country Club. It's a way that we send all our money out the door to sponsor our mission partners. Well, today we continue our sermon series, Roots to Roots, exploring how our past leads to our future by looking at the creeds and confessions of our church tradition. And today we're going to read the Apostles' Creed. And I've chosen a passage that I think points out what and who is at the heart of the Apostles' Creed. So let us open our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to the word of the Lord from Romans 5, verses 18 through 21. Therefore... The Apostle Paul writes, Just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. But law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, I ask that in the next few moments you might be our teacher. Lord, that you might speak a word to our hearts as only you can speak. Lord, through the Apostles' Creed, we might know you more. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today, I'm going to invite you to participate in a basketball awareness test. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. Okay, how many of you correctly counted how many passes the white team made? Okay, a few. I'm very impressed. Good job, gang. Isn't this how life works, though? We're busy counting things that we're aware of. We count the number of dollars in our bank account. If you're a student, you count the numbers that are in your GPA. You count the numbers of years it's been since your retirement or How many years you have to go until you retire? You count the numbers of your children, your grandchildren, your family members. 
In our lives, this is what we are often aware of, the number of passes that are made in our lives. But I must tell you, things are not always what they seem. But did you see the moonwalking bear? I told you things are not always what they seem. Friends, I have news for you. For those of you who have eyes to see, Jesus is the dancing bear of history. You could have watched this video many times. And as long as you were focused in on that white team making passes, you were never going to see what is really going on. And the Apostles' Creed points to what is really going on in human history. When we become too busy paying attention to the mundane moments of our lives, the Apostles' Creed says there's something bigger that's going on in our world. When we get distracted, when we feel alone, the Creed says you are not alone. The question is, will you have the eyes to see what is really going on? You see, the Apostles' Creed doesn't explain the mystery, but it does point out where the mystery is. It says, here is the dancing bear of history. But to see the dancing bear of history, you're going to need to see with the eyes of faith. Faith, in the New Testament sense of the word, is a special kind of knowledge. It's less like knowing arithmetic than falling in love. It's less like knowing the physics of how an airplane stays in the ground, and it's more like deciding to get on the airplane. It's less like knowing what colors make up the color green than saying that, that painting is beautiful. Faith is the kind of knowledge that sees through the chaos and commotion of our lives and recognizes what's really important. Gets to the heart of things. The word for faith in Greek is pistis. It can mean knowledge, it can mean belief, but it also has this connotation of trust. There's a riskiness to faith. Somebody I know once said that faith is where you can put your weight down. What will hold you? What will hold you fast? What can sustain you when the, the storms of life come? A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went to the Scott Antique Market comes to Atlanta about once a month, and usually we just go to look around, spend some time together, see the antiques. But this past Saturday, we were on a mission. We were going to find two decorative chairs to go under these light fixtures in our, our living room. It was one of those experiences. We spent hours there, you know, and, and when you go to look for something, you can never find it, right? <laughs> but we walked around for a couple hours, and finally we were leaving. I said, why don't we go outside and look at those vendors that are down at the end? She said, well, we might as well try. And so we walked down, go to the vendors, and there's this vendor who has all of this really cool African art and antiques. We're walking around, and my wife sees two chairs, and I can tell she's fallen in love with them. And I say, do not give it away. <laughs> the guy walks over. 
I, he, he, he could play D-line D for the Atlanta Falcons because this man is huge. And he goes, oh, you like these chairs? We said, yeah, how much are they? And he gave us the number. And he goes, and they're very sturdy too. And these could have been like a thousand years old and I would have believed it. But he sits in them and he get, begins sitting up and down on it. And I'm like, oh no, do not break the chairs. But he keeps sitting up and down in them. It was amazing. And I thought to myself, that man has faith. He has faith that the chairs are going to hold him. Why does he have faith? Probably because he's sat down in the chairs many times before. He's probably seen other people sit down on him. He probably knows the maker of the chairs. He knows the chairs are going to hold him down. And we bought, we bought those chairs. Paid a little more than we should have, but I was like, I got a sermon illustration out of it. He deserves it. Seeing with the eyes of faith means we need to see what can hold us fast, where we can put our weight down. And the Apostles' Creed keeps us from getting distracted so that we can focus in on the dancing bear of history. Now, there are all sorts of kinds of distractions that will distract us from where we need to put our faith. Here's some common distractions. Distraction number one, we can be distracted by believing we come from nothing. Recently, I don't know if you saw this, NASA launched the most powerful telescope that's ever been produced by humans. I'm told it's 100 times more powerful than the next most powerful telescope. It's capable of seeing light that's been traveling for 14 billion years. They claim it will be able to see back to a few seconds after the Big Bang. I read that and I was like, great. What I want to see is seconds before the Big Bang. I can look around now and see what happened after. Tell me what brought this all about. Then I'll be impressed. <laughs> what happened? What gave rise to everything that exists? Aristotle asked, why does something exist when nothing could exist? How do you explain human consciousness? I've read the second law of thermodynamics. I know about entropy. Why do things hold together when things should just fly apart? Why do we observe humans and animals demonstrating self-sacrificial love for one another when Darwinian natural selection says we should never observe that? Entire books have been written about these questions. But the creed doesn't get caught up in the distractions it gets to the point. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. All that exists, all that is seen and unseen was created and sustained by a loving God. Now, if you read the fashionable critics of Christianity, the new atheists, as they call themselves, like, you know, Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, you'll see that they always pick out like the straw men of Christianity. They never argue with like Karl Barth or Marilyn Robinson or Sarah Coakley or David Bentley Hart. Why? Because they're afraid to really take it on what, what theologians down through the centuries have believed. But many Christians, unfortunately, are worse theologians than they are scientists. Many of us make easy targets. For instance, did you ever know that there are two creation stories in Genesis? 
I didn't know this until I went to seminary and took an Old Testament class. I said, oh, I wasn't paying attention very well. No one had pointed it out to me. Yeah, it's true. Genesis 1, you have the first account, and it's the six or seven days of creation. There's six days God creates, and on the seventh day, God rests. At the very end, God says, and he calls it good. And in Genesis 1, the, word, the Hebrew word for God is Elohim. Elohim. But in Genesis 2, we see that God creates humans. Ha-Adam, the Adam, the human being, out of the dust and breathes life into him. See the creation of the Garden of Eden, the creation of Eve. The name used for God in Genesis 2, though, is the divine sacred name, Yahweh, that no observant Jew would even utter. So sacred. Two stories that are really hard to put together, but the creed doesn't worry about it. It says that's where the mystery is. Don't get confused. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Distraction two. If there is a creator, he's left us to our own devices. Notice what the creed says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Saying, the one who created the cosmos somehow is mysteriously the Father of Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord. One of the great heresies of the church arose in the second century, came back up again in the 20th century. And this heresy taught and tried to separate Jesus from his Jewish identity, from the people of Israel. But to quote Owen Wilson and meet the parents, J.C. was a Jew. <laughs> this heresy rose around A.D. 180 in Rome by a man named Marcion. And he began teaching that there were two gods of the Bible, you had a God of the Old Testament who was a tyrannical God, created a flawed world. But the New Testament God was a God of love and goodness. The Old Testament God was angry and vengeful and inferior to the supreme New Testament God. Because he believed this, he rejected the Old Testament. He also rejected Jew Jesus' Jewish identity. Marcion became a hero of anti-Semites down through the ages, including the Nazis in Germany in the 20th century. But notice, Christians who wrote the Apostles' Creed, they wrote it in many ways to directly refute what Marcion was teaching. The Creed reads, I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, did you know Christ is not Jesus' last name? No, it means Messiah or anointed one, Jesus the Christos. See, he's an anointed one. They're drawing this from the Old Testament because there are three kinds of people who are anointed in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. And the creed is saying Jesus is the culmination of these great traditions, these great offices of prophet, priest, and king. It culminates in Jesus. What do prophets do? They reveal God's message to us. What do priests do? They offer sacrifice on our behalf. What do kings do? They're called to rule and with sovereign power to take care of their citizens. Don't be distracted by Marcion and his followers. Look for the dancing bear of history who unites these great vocations of prophet, priest, and king in Jesus Christ. If we didn't have the Old Testament, we wouldn't know how to make sense of Jesus. But we do have it. And so we see the culmination of what it means to be a prophet, a priest, and a king in Christ. Distraction number three. 
We rely on our own holiness to live up to this great standard Jesus has set before us. Notice what the creed says. It says, I believe in the holy Catholic church. I'm going to address what that word Catholic means next week. But I believe in the holy church. What does it mean to be a holy church? I don't have to look around too much to say, man, the church seems pretty awfully unholy at times. What does the creed mean? Don't get distracted. In the third century, Emperor Diocletian persecuted Christians severely. And as a result of this persecution, many pastors left their faith. They abandoned the church. Oftentimes they gave up the sacred scriptures to the authorities. At a time when parchment was so rare, this was seen as a severe betrayal of the church. But then in 312, what's called the Edict of Milan, some religious freedom came to the Roman Empire. And guess what happened? All those pastors who had left the church, many of them, guess what they said? Can we come back? Can I have my job back? Sorry for that whole betrayal thing, but I'd like to be a part of the church again. And a big question confronted the church. Do we let them back in? Who counts as the church? Is it a special club for saints? Is it a hyper-spiritual sect with hard, high barriers to, to enter? Or I believe in the Holy Church. When the creed reads that. It says our holiness does not come from our own moral perfection or striving, but it comes from God. The church belongs to God. Our holiness is a gift of God's grace to us that's granted to us. God makes us holy in Jesus Christ. Later in the 4th century, this question again confronted the church. And so they made it very explicit in the creed. They added a line. They added this line. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. None of us are holy because of what we do. We'd all be in serious trouble. But we believe in the forgiveness of sins not because of what we do, because what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so from the earliest days of the church, if you wanted to join the church, and many people at the time were illiterate, couldn't read or write, they would have to memorize the creed. What's essential? They said, don't get distracted. This is what is essential for Christian faith. And when they would be baptized, they would often recite the creed to the church to demonstrate what they believe, where they put their weight down, what they put their faith in. They kept their eyes on what is most important. We don't come from nothing, but we come from a a creator who loves us. We're not left to our own devices. God has come into creaturely reality in Jesus, the Christ. And we don't rely on our own moral perfection or our own holiness, but it's a gift that God gives us in Jesus Christ and we receive in faith. Friends, this is what we all can agree on. Let us be on the lookout for who the Apostle Creed points out to us. Jesus Christ, the dancing bear of history. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you've come to us in Jesus. We thank you for the Apostle's Creed that highlights and points out who you are, what we can trust, what we can put our weight down. We pray that we might trust you with our entire lives. In your day, we pray. Amen.
You've been listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.